Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot. I'm Matt Risby. Good evening. And joining me, as usual, via the miracle of satellite technology, is our man in Havana. It's Ed Davis. How are you doing, sir? Right? Uh, very well, yeah. Close enough. Close enough to Havana. It certainly has the weather for it. Yeah. I picked our man in Havana this week for your introduction because it starred Maureen O'Hara, who sadly died this week. Oof. Your your run of incredible segues and connections continues. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, she'll be kind of sadly missed. One of the, you know, they don't make them like that anymore, do they, Ed? No, she was uh, an amazing film presence and also, like a lot of actresses of that era, when you look at her kind of back catalogue, it's surprisingly small because a lot of actresses kind of uh, retired, either intentionally or not, uh, after they hit a certain age. And so they have kind of a high concentration of hits and uh, she's got some kind of amazing work within that uh, within that back catalogue. Mm, yeah, absolutely. This week we've got a jam-packed show, a few loads going on in it, but at first, as always, we'll talk about what's going on in the news this week. It was, I don't know, it may have escaped your notice, it was Back to the Future Day, uh, which is a made-up day from a film that was all made up, and when it got to the day that's in the film, uh, people kind of lost their shit. And it was really annoying because uh, we got endless Facebook updates and tweets about hoverboards and the Cubs winning the World Series, which is ironic because they got knocked out in the postseason at in the same time. And it was kind of irritating to me, even though I like Back to the Future, but it kind of made me not want to like Back to the Future. But a lot of people do like it, and that's proved by the fact that it rang up quite a lot of ticket sales this week. It, it clocked up nearly $5 million in worldwide gross, which is kind of absurd, thinking... These are three films that were released kind of originally 20 years ago that people still have a huge appetite for. Yeah, and the idea of putting them all on in a single go and mm. just for a single day, it's 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 pretty good going uh, for what is essentially found money and just playing off of the nostalgia of people who love those films. Although I do find it quite funny that it's all revolving around nostalgia for Back to the Future as a franchise when this is actually just related to something in... Back to the Future Part 2, which is probably the least liked of the three mm, by a lot of people. Well, I don't know. Three is... I thought always thought three was really good, but then when I rewatched three, it's the one that holds up the least well. Uh, I think. I think for me, the second one is undone by the whole future sequence, just because the future sequence is so kind of uh, broad and kind of so upends the whole film uh, in comparison to the stuff in the alternate 1985 which i do think is genuinely really good Mm. and really intriguing and dark and strange and then obviously you get to the really inventive stuff where they go back to the events of the first film and and that stuff's all really kind of great whereas i think the third one has a kind of a tonal consistency that sort of uh that that works for me in a way that the kind of disjointed nature of the second doesn't Mm. except for that flying train that's yeah, a pretty kind of uh, tonal inconsistency. Yeah, yeah, that bit's that bit's kind of nuts. <laughs> uh, did say that all three films, Back to the Future Part One, Two, and Three, did occupy slots one, two, and three at the box office in Germany this week. So must have been a slow week in Germany. Yeah, well, they've got their own they've got their own problems. They needed something to take them back to the the good old days when they were divided into two countries. I guess. <laughs> 
Yeah, because I guess that part three would have come out just after the wall came down. Yeah, that sounds about right. So, like, like Hasselhoff, that film must have some <laughs> kind of baffling cultural significance uh, that no one else can truly understand. Every year they have like a, they have like a nativity play where Hasselhoff comes along and pretends to be Doc Brown, and so it's a whole thing. Mm, I'm sure it is. We need to get some bona fide Germans on this show to to kind mm. of dis- dispute that. But speaking of nostalgia, which has completely driven the whole Back to the Future Day thing, we had a Star Wars trailer last week, which kind of heavily leaned upon evoking nostalgia out of diehards, but also kind of set own records because tickets went on sale as soon as the the trailer went online. And, I mean, the numbers we kind of everyone expected to be kind of big, but they've kind of destroyed all the records. I mean, just for IMAX sales alone, I think the previous pre-sale record for IMAX was a million dollars, and that was set by Hunger Games and I think one of the Batman sequels. And that was a million dollars full stop in you know pre-sales just before the film came out in one day star wars did 6.5 million dollars wow that is kind of crazy yeah and uh, perhaps unsurprisingly those tickets overwhelmingly bought by older men mm. they're not doing much to dispel certain stereotypes about star wars fans <laughs> yeah yeah and the trailer itself i enjoyed immensely but it kind of brought out a lot of interesting online discussion because a it's fascinating that this is the most one of the most anticipated films ever made and we really don't really know anything about it. <laughs> There's still like big actors in the film, and we don't know who they're playing. Um, we don't. We've no, we haven't had like an official synopsis telling us what the film's about. We can kind of guess and kind of roughly uh, estimate some of the relationships between the characters and, and and kind of plot points and so on and so forth. But the other interesting thing is that I've noticed a real trend in like the last year, two years, of people really complaining that trailers give away too much. And we've even said it on this show. For instance, the Terminator Genesis trailer gave away the twist of the film. And other films have kind of given away whole sequences and, you know, kind of things that are kind of integral to the plot you'd rather not know before you go in. And that's been a thing that's been happening in the last year. But then this trailer came out and it doesn't really tell you anything. But all of a sudden everyone's like, where's Luke Skywalker? We want to know what's going on. I want to know everything. And I'm just like... Do you know what I mean? This is surely this is what a trailer's supposed to do. It's supposed to give you a little bit of information, but not enough. So you want to go and see it, and then we're talking about how weird it is that we're going to go and see a film in December that we know nothing about, which is what it used to be like. Yeah, it's it's kind of incredible. I think in part it's, it must come from a, a position of tremendous confidence because I sometimes get the sense, certainly with that Terminator trailer, they re- they revealed all of those twists because they were deadly afraid that no one was going to go and watch it. Mm. And I think they were like, they just had to start showing things that would get people talking about the film. And all it did was it just made people say, well, I don't want to see that film because you've shown me everything and I don't like what I've seen. Mm. And I think in the case of Star Wars, I think from that first teaser trailer, which was really just evoking a sense of atmosphere and the end, then only kind of ends with Han Solo and Chewie showing up. That was all about that, that, set the tone where everyone went crazy for it and then they thought okay i think we can get we can get away with only giving people hints of this stuff uh and i think that that is something that very few uh very few big companies can have i think you see that a lot with smaller films for example the the kind of gold standard for me of a great trailer of recent years is the trailer for a serious man the coen brothers film which is just a repetition of sort of three or four lines of dialogue said over and over until you get this kind of incredible rhythmic sense of of dread and terror and uncertainty which 
basically tells you almost nothing about what the film's about, but tells you exactly what the film feels like. Mm. Uh, and that you can do that because you're making a small film and you're just being like, people are going to see this because it's the Coen brothers and we don't need to make $500 million to see a profit. Mm. Uh, uh, and it's interesting to see uh, a company like Disney who are renowned for just kind of blitzing everyone with the sheer amount of advertising and their marketing might being willing to uh, just kind of play things a little more coyly while at the same time flooding everything with merchandising and uh, and tie-ins but that's you know kind of a separate thing mm. yeah I wonder what the IMAX pre-sales for a serious man were like um, <laughs> I can't imagine they were too big but I think JJ Abrams has got like a big part of that he's he's a big fan of kind of mystery and smoke and mirrors and all that kind of nonsense more off, quite often to his project's detriment yeah that's the only thing that has me a bit worried about the playing it so close to the chest is that if it's going to be like star trek into darkness where there's kind of a big mystery thing that they then reveal it will just annoy everyone whereas i think that i'm hoping it's going to be a bit more straightforward than that mm. on, a, on a separate note this is kind of my main misgiving about the marketing for specter the new james bond film because the trailers for that they've been playing very coy on the idea of like oh is christopher waltz playing Blofeld, no, he's not. Maybe he is, but no, he's not. And that's exactly the same thing mm, they did with But maybe Khan. he is, but maybe he is. Yeah, and it's the same thing they did with Benedict Cumberbatch playing Khan. It's the sort of thing where you think, just say if he is or not, because that's more enticing to me than just kind of trying to be coy about who he's playing. Mm, yeah. And didn't they give him like a name like Dave or something in Star Trek 2? Just like, a, like Dave Jones, and then it was at the end, oh, my name's Khan. Yeah, yeah. Or, or yeah, he just kind of reveals it, and it means nothing because you think, these characters don't care who you are. It's like, mm. that means nothing to them in this timeline, just as like hiding it. And then you suddenly realize it's like, I am Blofeld. It's like, okay then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nice one. There's also been a bit of, of a brouhaha online. Hasn't there a small vocal group of people been trying to boycott or trying to start a boycott on, of the, the, the new star Wars film on the basis that it promotes white genocide. We don't really want to give them too much exposure. But we would like to use this opportunity to call them a bunch of Yeah, I think so. It's a, it's, a, it's a terrible, terrible internet thing, isn't it? Why why does the internet harbour such uh, kind of uh, trolls? I think it's just a case of people glomming onto something that's obviously going to get them a huge amount of traffic. and then But then just kind of finding some way of relating to it that'll get people angry and talk about it. Mm. Um, but my, my main problem with the whole thing is they say it promotes white genocide, whereas obviously in the first Star Wars film, a whole planet full of white people got blown up. Mm. So it's not like this is new. Yeah, White people have been dying, being wiped out in Star Wars for a very long time. Mm. Yeah, get used to it, man. The times they are changing, etc., etc. Speaking of white genocide, uh, Chris Rock is hosting the Oscars. <laughs> <laughs> That's an acceptable segue, Ed. That is an acceptable I like it, segue. I like it. Yeah, I'm pleased with that. I thought it was fun last time, and I just hope Sean Penn can turn up and make, you know, just not get what's going on. Yeah, I said that my ideal Oscars is Chris Rock hosting the whole thing and then Sean Penn being like on a swing over the whole thing. And every so often, Chris Rock will just kind of put, look at him and make jokes at his expense. He's not allowed to respond. Because mm. uh, Sean Penn, that was probably one of the most dickish moments in Oscar history when he defended Jude Law against some very kind of tame jokes <laughs> about him not being in very successful films. Well, it wasn't the joke that he was in a lot of films that year. Yeah, he was in a bunch of films that year that didn't make any money. Oh, um, he, okay. he was in a bunch of he was in a bunch of flops. Right, and then and then Sean Penn gets up and he's like, "Jude Law is one of our finest actors." And it's like, he's a 
jokes, mate. <laughs> Stop mm. making it awkward for everyone. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a shame that our choices that we made in a, in a previous episode of Tina Fey and Amy Poehler or and The Rock hosting didn't come <laughs> true. Yeah, I think the best we can hope for in that is that they'll be presenters at one point, like just to hand out awards, which The Rock did last year and they basically gave him nothing to do and he made it shine. So I think as soon as they realise that when they give him four hours of nothing, he can probably make it work. Mm. Yeah, if anyone can. We'll finally get him. The Rock can. That's kind of the news this week, but we've we've had a bit of reader mail, Ed, would you believe it? We didn't even ask for it, like we did for the 100th episode, and this was just volunteered by one of our good listeners. And it goes uh, something like this. Mr. Matthew Hudson has gotten in touch, and he says the following. Uh, Dear Shot Reverse Shot, how does the Mission Impossible franchise keep managing to churn out a good level of film? Barring number two, they are all of very high quality. Now, this is something I've been thinking about recently. It's kind of snuck up on me that the Mission Impossible films are actually, again, barring number two, uh, they're all pretty decent. And I watched number five yesterday. And the quality is actually really high across the pretty much the whole franchise. What are the reasons, do you think, the why that could be? I think a big part of it is that it's one of the very few franchises that is uh, director-led. Mm. Uh, in the sense that they have had different directors on every single project. And even though J.J. Uh, Abrams has overseen the last three, he seems to have been given Brad Bird and Christopher McQuarrie a very uh, free reign in what they can actually do. Mm-hmm. And I think that means that you get different, you get new blood infused into it all that time. And unlike, say, the Marvel uh, Cinematic Universe, where you get different directors in and they all kind of have to adhere to a house style, all of the directors are allowed to reinvent it in their own image. And uh, so you get like the first film, which is Brian De Palma getting to do a whole sequence, which is a riff on Rafifi, which uh, is obviously perfectly in keeping with his his status as kind of an arch cinephile. Uh, then you get John Woo going kind of complete bombast and almost destroying everything, uh, both <laughs> in the film and outside of the film, in that he, he seems to nearly tank the franchise. J.J. Uh, Abrams kind of comes in and, and brings his kind of sense of mystery and his clearly his love of people, of wanting to work with really interesting actors because I, I don't think many directors would have been able to coax Philip Seymour Hoffman in post uh, Oscar win <laughs> to sign on to do a Mission Impossible film and to be great in it. Brad Bird comes along and obviously he comes from an animation background and so his ideas of composition are very diff- different. And then you get Christopher McQuarrie who's kind of got a very arch and hard edge sense of humour which he kind of brings to that. Uh, I think that constantly refreshing it really kind of helps it feel uh, new and interesting each time. Mm. I think Tom Cruise is a huge part of it as well. Not just the Mm. fact that you've got one of the world's biggest movie stars, you know, front and centre, but he kind of produces every every kind of instalment. I think with Paula Wagner, his his kind of long-term producing partner, I'm not sure if they did the last few, but definitely did the first couple. And, yeah, being able to kind of uh, learn the lessons that he's kind of, learnt from things like Night and Day, kind of films where it's not quite sparked, and just kind of maybe try some of those kind of more ridiculous action ideas out in a kind of more familiar context with kind of an established set of characters and established kind of formula in the sense that it's the IMF have to do something, it's really hard, and they pull it off in kind of ridiculously elaborate ways. And and I also think it helps in terms of their longevity and being able to kind of stand out that they have filled the void that was left when the Bond franchise got a bit more serious. Mm. Like they, they, are, they are spy films that 
kind of have things to say about mass surveillance every so often, but not really. And they and they are kind of very intelligently made, but they're also aware that they're doing very silly things. Yeah, and that they're they're operating in a kind of a world where physics don't really make sense, and you can just kind of do crazy things. And also, this is something we've talked about before. I think the emphasis on physical effects helps a lot in terms of bringing in people who want to see something like kind of crazy that you won't see other people like you as as much as i think most people adore him i don't think chris pratt is going to dangle off the side of a plane anytime soon mm. whereas uh tom cruise who is must have just kind of the world's most complicated death wish <laughs> he's yeah. willing to do that he's willing to put himself in just kind of incredible and dangerous situations and i think that 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 element really just kind of play into their appeal mm. yeah and they kind of make a big deal of it as well, especially in a in, a, in an age of of kind of digital doubles and and kind of uh, CGI stunts. They really do go the whole hog. I mean that that plane stunt, which kind of opens the most recent film, they kind of led with that, and they kind of released a feature it before the film was released, didn't they? And kind of hammered home the fact that it was really Tom Cruise doing that. Which you know the the phrase "I always do all my own stunts" has kind of got lost a bit now. But Tom Cruise really kind of does try and do as much as he humanly can. And it's fun watching that featurette because uh, even though he's Tom Cruise, he's fucking terrified. Yeah, and that's I think that's something that's gone back for a while. Because I remember when the third one came out, I was getting the bus home from university with a friend of mine. And we were both kind of like standing around and we just started talking about the Mission Impossible film. And the first thing I've ever said about it because it was coming out was... Did you know that he does all his own stunts in them? It's like, yeah, I saw that feature on Channel Four as well. <laughs> it's mm. like that was that was kind of the thing that makes it really stand out that this guy who's a massive movie star who absolutely does not need to do his own stunts uh, is completely willing to do so, and then kind of talk about it endlessly, endlessly on chat shows and in uh, documentaries. Mm. Yeah, yeah. In, in that respect, he is a he is a pure old fashioned movie star. Isn't he? he he is he will go to bat for your film. Absolutely, he's probably the the last of that kind really out there who will... Uh, I mean, someone like Bill Murray kind of does that as well, but whenever he has a project out, he kind of treats it more as a chance to go on... Or, like, he used to you treat it as a chance to go on Letterman and act weird mm. and often not really talk about the film all that much, whereas Tom Cruise is kind of a marketing machine in, in, in the form of a incredibly toned 50-something-year-old man. Mm. I'll tell you who will go one better... Will Smith, because he will do all the promo stuff. He'll be kind of charming, and he'll also do your rap as well. <laughs> he'll do you a single. He's a he's a twofer. You know what I mean? He's like Dennis Waterman. He'll do you the theme <laughs> as well. But yeah, it's it's weird that like uh, the Mission Impossible films kind of work so well, given that Bond exists and kind of Bourne is still kind of flitting around. But it does kind of like you say fill those niches. Like the gadgets disappeared from Bond a few films ago. And the gadgets in in Mission Impossible have got more and more ridiculous. Yeah, they've they've as the uh, the action and the gadgets have gotten more and more kind of elaborate. The films have kind of got a little goofier and a lot more fun. Yeah. I think that at the same time that you get things like the Batman films and the the, the, the films that have been inspired of that, where they try and make blockbusters that are very kind of dark and serious. I think that the fact that they're willing to be so kind of light hearted about it all, much the same again, similar to how Marvel do that as well is a big part of what makes them stand out. Mm, yeah. 
Absolutely. Before we get into the meat of this week's episode, it kind of saddens us to report some some kind of not so good news. Dr. Clifford Shaw, who was one of the most recognisable faces uh, around Sheffield cinemas, sadly passed away this week at the grand old age of 96. He served for many years as Sheffield's chief medical officer, but kind of, uh, I think in the 70s or 80s, he retired and kind of devoted his whole life to kind of loving films, basically. He kind of joined the Sheffield Cinema Society and he eventually took it over and found himself compiling a definitive history of Sheffield's cinemas. And he's one of the characters that if you went to a cinema in Sheffield on any given day, you'd most likely see him. And I know you worked at the showroom in in Sheffield for a long time and, and the fact that we're even talking about him kind of says a great deal. Yeah, he was kind of he he was kind of a legend for basically anyone who worked in the cinema in Sheffield. But also, I think anyone anyone who went to the showroom reasonably regularly over the last kind of twenty years or so, however long the the showroom's been around, has probably shared a screen with him because he would just come in and he would see films all the time. He saw everything, and it wasn't just all the arty stuff that we were showing. He went to every cinema. He would see. Uh, everything from kind of like neorealism retrospectives to whatever the newest kind of teen comedy was and he had kind of an an omnivorous love of of watching films and he was always kind of a delight to talk to about the films that he'd watched and he also just kind of he had an amazing because of you know how long he'd, he'd been watching films for he'd started watching films in the silent era because he was he was born just kind of started going to see films just as uh, sound was coming in. And, you know, his his whole life encompassed all of that. And he also, when he was uh, posted in West Africa in, I think, the 60s, he would arrange screenings for people. So even when he was a kind of a medical professional, his uh, cinema was kind of a huge part of, of what he did. And uh, he was just kind of a cinephile to aspire to, really. Mm. It's weird, like, seeing... Uh, on Twitter, just as the kind of the news came out this week, so many people who kind of we know and we're connected to, and people who I even don't know, kind of seeing their stuff retweeted on, talking about how much you know little stories about him. Kind of, so I think I can't remember who it was, but someone said that I think he came out of a film and said they said, "Did you enjoy that?" And he was like, "Yeah, the character didn't have to die at the end, though." <laughs> just like, well, I don't, <laughs> don't need to see it now. He, 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 you know, he was someone that kind of was always kind of friendly and lovely and kind of approachable and, and always kind of a fixture at Docfest. He was, he saw more films at Docfest than you ever could hope. And, you know, given that even in my kind of recent Docfest attendance, which is, you know, kind of the last seven or eight years, he was kind of an ever present. He would see more films than I would. I mean, even when I was kind of, kind of caning through five, six a day, he would be there earlier than everyone else. And he'd kind of stay later than everyone else. He probably didn't go to as many parties, um or kind of the latest stuff but yeah he was always there always seeing it and yeah it's going to be sad to to not have him around yeah and uh i believe docfest are going to name an award after in his honor yeah primarily because uh i came up with the infinitely less classy idea of putting his face on the bag that comes out every uh <laughs> every year and then kind of dave holloway who works for docfest sometimes uh kind of we were talking on twitter and came up with the idea of pitching it to docfest and we said maybe you should that kind of name is the only reason why you can't name the audience award after him. And uh, they said, they said, no, there isn't any reason. So, you know, hopefully they'll kind of follow through on that and, and we'll kind of see him kind of uh, honoured in that way. Cause that would be kind of very cool and appropriate. But yeah, speaking of honouring Dr. Shaw, we thought we'd dedicate this episode to him and talk about, you know, the act of cinema going. It's something we've not really talked about in a dedicated way before, done kind of little bits and bobs of it, but it kind of seems appropriate. 
It does, and it's it's kind of weird that he passed away this week because we were planning to do this anyway, mm. this episode anyway, because uh, my friend uh, Dr. Patrick Glenn, who uh, I've known for, for many years, went to university together, approached me with the idea of doing an episode about cinema going so that he could interview his professor, Professor Melvin Stokes of UCL, who is uh, doing a project about cinema going in the 1960s. And we have that interview now, which was uh, conducted by Pat, but he was inaudible on the the file he sent to me. So I have overdubbed him asking the questions that he asked. So thanks, Pat, for doing that. And also thanks for saying that I could overdub you to make it listenable. I'm running a project at the moment which is trying to gather memories of going to the cinema in Britain in the 1960s. What was the impetus for the study? Well, about four, four and a bit years ago, I was asked to give a talk to UCL alumni, and I talked about cinema in the 1960s, and I was amazed at the number of people who came up to me afterwards with their memories of going to the cinema, and they all had their favourite cinemas, they all had their favourite memories, and it struck me, wouldn't it be really a, a wonderful idea to recover, trying to put together lots of other people's memories, not just university students, but people from all across the country, from all walks of life, all classes, all, all groups. And see if we can see if everybody had roughly the same experience of going to the cinema in Britain in the 1960s. It's an important decade because historians now argue over whether the 60s really is one of those great periods of transformative change or whether it's much more a kind of continuation of the rather conservative 1950s. Do you think that cinema-going habits in the 1960s reflect British culture in general from that era? And if so, what do you think those behaviours say about Britain at the time? Well, that's a complicated question that that would take several hours to answer. Um, But basically, it depends what films you're going to see in the 1960s. And most films that people saw were American, as had been the case since the First World War. American films tended to dominate the British market. But you also have two kinds of British films, which there was a big reaction to in the 60s. There are, there are socially realist films, like Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, and these are set usually in the North, dealing with working-class characters. And this is new for most British films, and a lot of people do say in the questionnaires and interviews we've done that it was for them a little bit like a commentary on the life they knew, and that was the appeal for them. At the same time, you also found some people who said, this is really the kind of life I was trying to get away from. Uh, And that brings me on to the second kind of film, which is you do have what become known as the swinging London films, the 1960s, films like Darling. And they are all to do with a kind of candy floss world of London, um, fashion models, uh, filmmakers, um, photographers, and so on. But they do offer an image of a kind of much more glamorous and, and not provincial lifestyle. Did the films reveal social anxieties of the time? I think the answer to that is is decidedly yes, but usually in a very oblique kind of way. We think of a lot of liberalisation happening in Britain in the 1960s. We think of swinging London, we think of miniskirts, we think of, of permissiveness. On the other hand... Changes to the law, I mean, for example, the um, introduction of the law permitting abortion, the reform of the laws relating to to male homosexuality and the liberalisation of the divorce laws in 1969, making it easy for people to divorce. These are all things that come towards the end of the decade. 
I mean, some of them are prefigured in films earlier on, before the laws actually are on the statute book. You get the word homosexual, for example, first moved in the, first used in a British film in 1961. And again, all these films have to go through the British Board of, of Film Censorship. So the fact they're actually going through and they're not controversial means in some sense that attitudes are certainly beginning to change. What were your own cinema-going habits? Well, that's a very good question. Like, like most people, I started going to the cinema with my parents, and my parents had different tastes. Uh, my father was a fan of westerns and war films and action films generally. My mother liked musicals, and she was one of those who went to see The Sound of Music many times, for example, in the middle of the decade. So I suppose those would have been my first exposures to film. And I grew up in a, a town in Yorkshire called Wakefield, where there were in those days three cinemas, so they, they've all gone now. Uh, one of them, the um, the Regal, as it was called, um, I think is might be about to be demolished, but this was the place where the Beatles performed in 1963. You do actually find evidence in the survey we're doing that cinemas were sometimes used for other purposes besides watching films. What I remember are things like this is where we came in because in those days you bought not a seat for a particular performance you, you bought a seat so you arrived when you wanted to arrive which quite often was halfway through the main film you stayed you watched the ads you watched the newsreel um, sometimes you watched that there was a b movie also maybe some cartoons for kids then the main film would start again you got to the point where you'd come in you turn to whoever you were with you were with and you'd say this is where we came in um if the film was not particularly great at that point you'd get up and leave disturbing all the other cinema goers in in, in the meantime if the film was good you would actually stay on and carry on watching it as many more times as you want uh, also cinemas in the 60s were incredibly smoky places. Um, we have stories of people almost writing poetically about the kind of smoke that's rising up to the the projector beam. And quite a lot of cinemas did have fans. This wasn't to really help the audience if the smoke got too much. It was really to get rid of the smoke so people could actually see the film. And by the end of the 60s, you're beginning to have a strange invention called non-smoking rows. And what that means, of course, since these things aren't usually air-conditioned, is you would sit there in the first or second row imbibing everybody else's smoke, but at least virtuously you were sitting in a non-smoking row. Also, there was a ritual about going to the cinema. Going to the cinema was something special. You, you sometimes dressed up for it. The plushness of, of the chain cinemas, the curtains, the carpets. Quite a few people in our survey say that, you know, it was impressive to see the carpets in the cinema because we, we had lino at home. Part of the ritual was settling down. If you went at the beginning of a performance, of course, the safety curtains would be in use. So you would see these red plush curtains covering the screen. They had to pull back before the, the film actually started or the program actually started. And during the interval the curtains would come back and ushers would arrive with trays of snacks. Now, by today's standards, they're fairly elementary stuff. You'd get sort of some ice creams, maybe some chalk ices, pastels, maybe Maltesers. And the only drink most of these places had was something called Kiora, which was a very strange and kind of slurpy drink. You drank it out of a straw. You had it because that was not, there was nothing else, but nobody liked it very much. And even so, you'd pay for it, therefore you drank it all and you kind of slurped it up and sometimes you became very unpopular with the people who were sitting around you in the cinema while you were doing that. Uh, also, 
There was a certain slight discipline about cinema in the 1960s because you had a well-developed system of ushers who would show you to your seats, usually women, not entirely, not always, but usually women, and they would point the torches, and sometimes they would police the cinema. So if people kissing whatever on the back row became a bit too raucous and a bit too disturbing to other people that they'd come and shine their, their, their torches on, on people's faces. Uh, we've also got a, a lovely comment by one woman who said that if the film itself was really quite boring, the people like myself in the audience would turn around and watch what, what was happening on the back row because it was far more interesting and exciting than the film. Finally, how can people get involved? Well, we have a website, which is www.ucl.ac.uk forward slash cinema memories. And that gives you all the details about the project. We've been traveling around the country doing various screenings in, in lots of locations. We're still carrying on doing that. There's, there's a questionnaire that can be either completed online or on paper. And if this sounds as if this is a, a sort of very serious social science survey, which it is, but we also find that almost everybody who fills in the questionnaire is telling us it's actually really fun to do. And once you actually touch one memory, you begin to touch lots of other memories. So do please get involved. We'd love to hear from you. And we're acquiring a wonderful store of how people remember going to the cinema in 1960s Britain. But there's always space for some more. A lot of interesting stuff in there. Let's get right into it. My first question for you based on that is, you know, listening to the, to, to Melvin talk about the uh, cinema as it was in the 60s, how different is that of your experience of going to cinema kind of in your formative years? Uh, less smoking, obviously. Um, mm. yep. And the carpets have never been good um, in kind of the <laughs> cinemas I went to. It's kind of unusual that the very first cinemas I went to were single screen I'm thinking of, I, I think it probably was called the Gaumont in Ipswich where I grew up and kind of every film I went to see for the first kind of nine to ten years of my life uh, would have been single films, uh, a single screen and they would have been programmed, I don't know, I don't remember, kind of a mystery to how films were programmed back then because I remember seeing Bambi at the cinema which obviously came out in the, the kind of 40s which is kind of unusual, you, you wouldn't get that now unless it was a repertory screening and yeah, it was a, it was a much less of of an of a, of a kind of an occasion to go to the cinema, and then obviously when the multiplex opened up, I think which had a what then seemed like a monstrous four screens, you know, it completely changed the act of going again. It wouldn't be kind of like a family night out to see what was showing this week. It would be, you know, let's go and see anything. It's on. It's the options are kind of like wide open, and then obviously we got one multiplex, then another one, and then you know now you've got kind of twenty options of an evening rather than just one. And I think my early memories of going to the cinema, kind of you know, being taken by my parents and stuff, were it was more of an occasion than it is now. When you can you know probably walk into a cine world with your unlimited card and sit and watch five films in a row. Yeah, I mean, I'm a few years younger than you, so my experience of certainly when I was a kid was entirely multiplex based. I don't remember as uh, as a young and having any small cinemas near to me, so. But but at the same time, uh, you know, I grew up in a lot of kind of rural towns in the Midlands as my parents moved around to run different pubs. So it still felt like an occasion when we would go to the cinema because it was rare that they would both have a night off at the same time because they were working 18 hour days to keep the pubs running. But it was also it involved kind of a 40 minute drive to go to Coventry to the showcase cinema there 
or you know to to over to Nuneaton to see what was a Warner Village cinema at, at one point. So there was a sense of occasion to it, but it also you know we weren't dressing up for it. We were going in tracksuit bottoms because it was the nineties, <laughs> and um, and we we wanted to have pictures of us when we grew up, and we could look at it and say, yeah, we were we were cliches, yeah. But like, uh, I did find it interesting in terms of talking about the idea of like them providing snacks and things like that because that I did have that experience, but only when they would show films at school. Like if they did after school, they would have people, they would take people into the assembly hall, they would bring down kind of a, a projector screen or just kind of a carpet or something, and they would kind of project cool runnings or something onto there, and you'd sit and you'd watch it, and then they would bring out snacks and things. So. That clearly the teachers who were maybe you know quite a bit older who had grown up with that experience i thought it was interesting they were clearly trying to recreate their experience of going to the cinema for us at a time when you know you would not go you would not have an interval at stargate or something and people bring you chop ices mm. it was weird to hear him say that you know people would go and watch a film and just turn up when they wanted and yeah, that's and it so would, alien. You know, would cycle round. I mean, I always knew that they showed a B movie first, and you know, if you didn't feel like it, you could skip it, or you turned up towards the end of it and then watch the main feature. I didn't realize that they kind of looped it around. Yeah, I know. I think I, I was. I think I'm kind of aware of that just from watching films set in kind of olden times, like where people would, or, or films shot in the in the time period where you would get people just kind of walk in during the middle of a feature. Mm. Uh, like most recently, this is very specific, I, most recently I watched the episode of The X-Files, which I think it's called Memories of a Cigarette Smoking Man, where it goes through the backstory of the cigarette smoking man and reveals him being involved in things like the Kennedy assassination and stuff like that. And they do show uh, Lee Harvey Oswald going into the cinema after the assassination of JFK has happened. And he does walk in during the middle of a film. And like my dormant cinema usher part of my brain it's just kind of like that's too late to let him in but then you know you kind of think well i guess in those days it wouldn't be you would just kind of go in and, and sit down and that was kind of one of the things that made the psycho such a big deal at the time because one of the advertising pushes of, of psycho was they had alfred hitchcock listing uh, certain rules and they were things like you have to watch the film from beginning to end and that you should not come in after the first 20 minutes which Obviously, it's now seemed like really basic parts of how you watch a film. But at the time, they were very much kind of like, no, this is actually something that you have to do. Mm. It's unusual that that's never really been kind of implemented for the cinema because in theatre, you know, there are, you're not admitted until there's a suitable interval because you're not going to disrupt the performers. But, like, I think it should be a rule in the cinema that if, you, if you're not there and seated within the first two or three minutes, you shouldn't be allowed in. I think that the... Alamo Drafthouse chain do implement that. Oh, sweet. That, I, I believe that's one of their rules, is that you're not allowed in after a certain point in the... Uh, has been reached in the performance, and then the ushers will stop you. But that they are, you know, they're kind of the... Uh, I guess the gatekeepers or the, the uh, torchbearers for etiquette in cinema at a time when it's at an all-time low by, you know, throwing people out for using their phone for even just kind of the most minor things. Mm. Uh, they're very, very strict on that sort of stuff, which obviously... 90% of places that show films are not. Absolutely. They're about kind of... I mean, the multiplex, as it is now, is about kind of cramming as many people in to see as many films as kind of humanly possible. It doesn't really matter how long this... As long as they bought their ticket, people, they don't really care. Yeah, it is a shame. And also, this kind of comes on the, the news that I believe the Odeon in Leicester Square, they're kind of breaking up one of their their, their big multi-thousand uh, seat 
screen into multiples into multiple screens so they can show more films instead of having one film on a on a massive screen, which uh, is very disappointing to me. And also because the only film I ever saw there was Miss Congeniality, and I kind of feel like I wasted that opportunity. <laughs> well, I mean, it could have been Miss Congeniality too. What else? What else have you got from that uh, interview? In terms of the kind of the the physical space of cinemas, how much do you kind of how, how kind of alien does that sound to you? The idea of, of cinemas kind of being actually quite lavish and nice places to be. Well, it's it's such a an exception when you go to one, and we've talked before about the the Hyde Park Picture House in in Leeds, which is you know hugely atmospheric and a beautiful place to watch a film. But that's very much the exception. The, the kind of the cinemas that we go to now are kind of they're strip malls essentially, uh, full of darkened rooms where you can see a screen, you have a clear view, and your seat's comfortable, and it's got a cup holder, which I would trade in for a unique space in which to experience something with a group of like-minded individuals. There's just not the space for that these days. And those small kind of bijou kind of boutique theatres are kind of slowly becoming a thing of the past. But the good thing is, is that they are being kind of preserved and saved because they do occupy a niche that people want filled. Yeah, I mean, the the Hyde Park pitch house is kind of the gold standard of that for me, of, of cinemas I've been to. I'm sure there are other ones that are equally as nice, but... Uh, that's the kind of the nicest one I've ever been to. It does have a sense of occasion to it to feel that you're actually sitting down in kind of lovely seats in, in a well-appointed place, as opposed to our kind of uh, our, our touchstone for awful cinemas, which is the Odeon in Sheffield, Ugh. which which is a brutalist nightmare. <laughs> it's it's you know just kind of horrible small screens built around the contours of the nearby car park, so you have incredibly weird rows, and and there is a kind of a a charm to seeing the uh, the way in which they kind of cram one row with, with just a single seat because they're trying to get an extra one sold, even though it's in the worst position possible to watch a film. But yeah, it's it's the sort of thing where you show up and you think, I don't need to respect this place or the people in it. They've made their choice to come here. Yeah, and it, it really does promote, yeah, like you say, a, a kind of a, a disrespect towards what's going on. People will kind of walk out, they'll kind of do other things, kind of play around on their phone or whatever if the place is, is a kind of a shed, essentially. And mm. the Odeon in Sheffield is a good example of, you know, uh, something that's not very well thought out, not very well put together. And if anyone gets up in the middle of the film, their their whole body gets in the way of the projector beam. And yeah. you can see their whole <laughs> silhouette on the screen. And then they realise that, and then they start pissing about making kind of shadow puppets, which generally does make it kind of the worst place. Although you won't know this because you don't live here anymore, but there's a new cinema opening on the moor, a huge redevelopment. So we'll see how long the Odeon lasts up against that monolith, which will probably be the better design because it's custom built. Yeah, I mean, the the aesthetics, I think, of cinema going, of cinemas is, is kind of a major hurdle at this point. I think it's kind of a thing... It's, it's it's frustrating how no one seems to have picked up on that if you design a nice space, chances are you will get more people to come along. Mm. It kind of touches on that thing um, Oscar Wilde said, you know, when asked, why is, is there so much violence in America? And he replied, the wallpaper. <laughs> uh, and he was essentially saying that if people live in places that are not aesthetically nice to be, if they don't get any joy from the surroundings they're in, then, you know, they will not, kind of act in the best possible light and i think that pretty much any mainstream any multiplex cinema that isn't designed with the idea of saying this is a nice place we should try and make it seem as nice as possible so people actually like being here 
is kind of doing themselves the problem of people not treating the space as a public space instead of just instead they will just treat it kind of with complete disregard mm. we're continually told year after year that people are becoming less and less engaged with the act of going to the cinema and there are so many reasons for this you know the fact that you can have blu-ray at home which is you know magnificent quality you can have a 50 inch telly at home quite kind of comfortably against the fact that films now at cinemas are digitally projected and not necessarily with the greatest care in, in the world. Do you think that do you think that the, the future is as bleak as some people are saying it is? Or do you think that, you know, we're, we're kind of on this course for quite some time? I think the, I mean, I'm just kind of going to end up echoing things like Mark Komoda said, but I think that the the future of may, of multiplex cinema is probably quite bleak because mm. they are these huge monoliths that need a lot of people to come to them in order to survive and people are not choosing to do that so much i mean people people still go to the cinema films still get you know they still sell a lot of tickets not as much as they used to but it's not like um i was looking up details on you know attendance figures in britain and over over time and it's not like the 80s where in 1984 only 58 million tickets were sold at a time when the population of Britain was 56.4 million and now it's it's shot up to about 176 million. So it's not as bad as the 80s when people when cinema seemed to be on the verge of dying out completely. Mm. But fewer films are being shown in general, fewer films are being released in, in multiplexes. That These cinemas need to sell a lot of tickets and to make a lot of money in order to be viable. Whereas... I think smaller places, if they can cultivate a, a kind of a, a loyal audience and they can, you know, program intelligently to kind of get people in and every so often put on, like the showroom does, what you occasionally put on, like an Inception or something, you know, that might draw in a, a more mainstream crowd. Things that do that, I think, are a lot more flexible and have a better chance of surviving in a way that, in a landscape that isn't perhaps conducive to the idea of mass cinema going. Mm. Do you think that certain types of film will always be shown in the cinema? And do you think that, as kind of I've read from various kind of sources, you know, cinemas kind of maybe in 20, 30 years would just be for huge blockbusters and all other films will find their outlets on kind of VOD or, or kind of streaming? Which is, is kind of a depressing thing because it means that, you know, a big blockbuster film is guaranteed to be seen on a big screen, whereas, you know, a kind of a small intimate drama, which, is, you know, is intended, should be intended to be seen on a bigger screen as possible, you know, perhaps won't find a home there. It is a shame. I do kind of feel like that seems like the most likely outcome and it would be quite depressing because I do feel, even though I watch most films that I see now, I see at home just because stuff either doesn't open near me or I don't have time to fit it in around work to catch stuff before they disappear from the cinemas. I I prefer to see films on a big screen as often as possible. I think that is where films should be seen, you know, regardless of, the budget of the ambition, the best place to see a film is on the big screen, ideally projected from film, but I'm not I'm not a purist like that in the way that a lot of people are. But you know, there are there are ideal ways that you should see a film, and I feel like those ideal ways will cease to exist for most films within the next twenty or thirty years. At the same time, I feel like that is the only way that it's gonna survive with the splintering of an audience that you kind of have the big films that get to sit in the big screens. I think I would rather that situation arise than a situation where people only bank on big films to make money. I think that the 
the the splintering of the different ways of distribution and the fact that you can have films that debut on Netflix or that have day and date releasing, I think that that is perhaps more that is more conducive to films being made and to actually being seen. They may not get seen in the best possible situation, but uh, I feel like it's a better situation for these films to be seen by people than to have them like playing in only a few screens and then they they just kind of fade into obscurity. Mm. It's a weird kind of double-edged sword, isn't it? That Mm. an independent filmmaker has the better chance of having their film seen, just not in a cinema. I mean, like it came up earlier this year, the film uh, 45 Years, the new Andrew Hay film came out and it came out and it was day on day on VOD. And I was like, well, you mean that I could pay £25 to go out and see the film with two tickets for me and the wife and, you know, some popcorn and a cup of tea or whatever, or I could pay £7 and I don't have to leave the house. And it was kind of a weird thing that, like, that's unusual for me to be presented with that dilemma. And, you know, spoiler, dear listener, I didn't choose either. <laughs> so, <laughs> too lazy to even make that choice. You know, I'll wait for the VHS, it's fine. But, like, the idea that that's a thing that can happen, will happen more and more, that, like, you're saying to someone who lives in a society which is, you know, time poor and, you know, kind of live in uncertain economic times. <laughs> I can't believe I can say that with a straight face. You know, you present an option to sit there and click a button and it will appear on your telly rather than you having to go and sit perhaps next to someone who's not that interested and is on their phone the whole time. You can sit at home and watch it. It'll be on your phone. You know what I mean? Yeah, and it's it's interesting in the last couple of weeks because uh, the film Beasts of No Nation, which is uh, directed by Carrie Fukunaga, who is most famous probably for directing True Detective, Jane Eyre and Sin Nombre, he directed this film for Netflix and the film debuted on Netflix and in cinemas at the same time. Mm. And surprisingly, did very poorly in cinemas because... Yeah, who'd, who'd have thought? Because you, they put it out into whatever it is, like 60 million homes. Mm. And but they, but they But Netflix have basically kind of said, that's what we kind of expected. We just put it in cinemas because we want it for awards consideration, mm. which is kind of... You kind of feel like, yeah, but films tend to get more attention if they make money. <laughs> Yeah, if they're making headlines because no one went to see it, and that's not the best publicity. But you know that is that is an interesting situation where, again, you you're giving people the option, and and the question becomes, is it better that it's being seen? Because I think a lot of people probably have checked it out because it's on Netflix and because it comes from a director who's kind of got a, a degree of pedigree, and it stars Idris Elba, who's kind of a very well known star. Mm. Is it better that it's just being seen, or would you rather that it actually like make money and that you can actually even you know not just financially just so that you could have the bragging rights to say hey it did really well in limited release mm. yeah yeah it's a weird thing that like you know if if i was an independent filmmaker and someone said well do you want it to be seen or do you want it to be seen in cinemas i honestly don't know how i'd react to the i'd probably just want it seen yeah it's the like the less dire version of the dilemma where people you know like you hear independent filmmakers say you know, people will say to them, or, or even just anyone in creative arts will say, "Hey, you know, I heard, I saw your film, or I heard your comedy special, or whatever," on, uh, and I torrented it, and they'll kind of like say, "Hey, we thought it was really funny," and those people will say, on one level, "Yeah, I'm great, you saw it, but mm. fucking pay me," <laughs> you know. I think that uh, that is a that is kind of the the problem of the way that 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 place that media is now is that it is easier for people to see things. It's harder for people to actually make a living from, you know, making things that people see. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was a weird thing that was on the radio, but like maybe two weeks ago and it was the lead singer of Tame Impala 
had said that like he was like, well, I don't care if you've downloaded it as long as it made a connection to you, man. Uh, mm. I'm, I'm, yeah. I was thinking, well, okay, if everyone did that, then well, I suppose you know they've got other avenues, haven't they? Music, they kind of play live and, and kind of festivals and stuff, and you know bits and bobs. Yeah, and if you have a if you have a record contract, you already have the money. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not like they're going to do live live action performances in theaters and films. <laughs> Although I would, I think that'd be great. That should be part of the contract. They release it in films in cinemas for one day, and you have to pay to go and see it. But if you don't, you have to catch the tour in production of it, performed <laughs> by amateur actors with puppets. Uh, oh, I think that could improve something like Jurassic World. Oh, could you imagine the sock puppet Jurassic World? That'd be amazing. Some uh, this is not. This has been dragging on for a long time. This is not a new um, concern. You know, cinema might face a bleak future. A couple of years ago, there was a very interesting discussion between two kind of heavyweights of of, of the field uh, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and George Lucas seems to suggest that it would you know kind of go the way of kind of Broadway and uh, yeah he kind of said uh, the following he said you're going to end up in with fewer theatres bigger theatres with a lot of nice things going to the movies will cost 50 bucks or 100 or 150 bucks like what Broadway costs today or a football game it will be an expensive thing the movies will sit in theatres for a year, like a Broadway show does, and that will be called the movie business. Now, obviously, a lot of what George Lucas says could be kind of passed off as the gibbering of a kind of a lunatic. Do you think that he might be onto something there, or do you think that is perhaps too far? I think that in his madness, <laughs> he, he unveils some truths. I think that if cinema is to kind of stay viable in that regard. I think the idea of charging more for a better service seems to be the most likely way. If you prevent it as luxury and you actually provide people with luxury as opposed to what cinemas do nowadays, which is gouge people. Mm. You know, they give them, they charge more for less. They hire fewer rushes. They make terrible popcorn and offer terrible snacks. They, you know, overcharge on drinks and things like that. If you were to offer, in again, to cite them, do what the Alamo Draft House do, which is where you pay to have a decent number of ushers, you offer good food and drink, you provide people with a an all-round kind of very pleasurable experience, people will be more willing to... They will be willing to pay more for it. Mm. The idea of it being like Broadway, where a film will play for a year, I don't see that happening for narrative films. I think in the case of something like, like Over Here... At, I think at Cape Canaveral, they have had like an IMAX documentary about space that has been running for about 12 years or something like that. Uh, things like that, which just run in there, a dedicated theatre for, at this point, literally a decade, and they, they charge for it. And it's a special thing that you go to and see. I can see that working where if you have some sort of special installation-y sort of thing that people can watch, that, that could kind of work. But I don't know if your average big screen kind of blockbuster would be able to sustain interest that long unless you're going to completely destroy the idea of kind of home viewing like mm. if they stop if they stop releasing films on any format other than being able to watch it in the cinema which will never happen because you know streaming now is so prevalent and i made a, a joke about it in an episode gone by you know i said that who who watches a series on netflix or something that they own on dvd because it saves them having to get up and change the disc. They can just click continue playing. And if you've been watching it too long, they get the insulting message saying, are you sure you want to continue watching this? Which I was like, you know, who do you think you are, Netflix? Leave leave, <laughs> you know, leave it out. But like the, the very idea that if people are becoming that lazy, 
then if they can't be bothered to actually buy the disc and people, you know, the companies cut onto that and they just appear on your VOD device, whether it's like kind of Now TV or, or Sky or Netflix or Prime or whatever, people are obviously going to go for that. They'll, they'll buy their fucking hands off. I bet you if you asked, kind of, if you did an exit poll, any film, kind of maybe not a huge blockbuster, um, but any film at the cinema on any given kind of Friday night and said, well, if you could have had that delivered to your home and you could watch it in the comfort of your own lounge... Would you have done that over the experience you just had? I think you'd probably be disturbed to find quite a lot of people, you know, saying yes. It it does make me wonder if it's going to get to the point where people who see films in a cinema are going to be like people who buy music on vinyl, mm. because that's kind of more of a specialised thing. And I think that in recent years has grown in the way that you know sales of CDs has fallen. You know, people buy or listen to music most often digitally now. And, but there are hundreds of thousands of vinyl LPs sold every year mm. because they're, for a subsection of people, that's how they want to enjoy their music. And I feel like the way that trends are going in 20 or 30 years, it would not surprise me if that's what you end up with, is that cinema watched in a in the cinema is kind of the uh, the area of enthusiasts uh, who and is kind of more catered to and more tailored by small cinemas as opposed to kind of big multiplexes which can't sustain, can't live on an audience that small. Mm, yeah. I mean, the vinyl thing is a reaction, isn't it, to, to things like, you know, people listen to music digitally, they don't listen to albums anymore, you know, they'll stick library or a playlist on shuffle and, you know, stuff will just randomly be thrown up. And the vinyl thing is a reaction to that. People want to go through the ritual of listening to to a, to an album to actually set it up and put on side one and then turn it over and then listen to side two. Can you see any kind of reaction, reactionary changes in viewing habits in cinema along the same lines? It's, it's more, I think, in the area of curation. I think the rise of special screening being organised, such as the ones that you and Ryan did as the Five and Dine, the idea of actually putting on screenings for people and saying, hey, you can watch this Burt Lancaster film from 1968 that no one's ever heard of, mm-hmm. and it would be very cool and a rare experience. Or what the the Badland Film Collectives have been doing in London, where they find uh, interesting films to put on and, and you know try and project and project them in 35mm and stuff like that. And, you know, and there is an audience for these sort of things. I think it's it may become the situation where people doing stuff like that is kind is where the reaction comes from. It's less to do with consumer behavior than with middlemen coming up and saying there is a gap in the market here we can we can do something with this that actually you know appeals to people like us who want a unique cinematic experience that you will not get if you go to a cine world or an odeon mm. gonna end this segment on you know possibly a very glib note but do you think that a lot of people care if you said to them if you like go down Cineworld World or something on a Friday night and stand outside as Fast and the Furious nineteen plays or whatever, and as people come out, just say, "Were you satisfied with the projection? Did you mind the the people in front of you were on their phones the whole time?" Do you think it would be a depressing survey to look back on that ultimately no one cares if the film shot on digital, no one cares if it's projected on thirty five mil, and no one cares if the popcorn tastes like anus. <laughs> Yeah, I think that probably would be the case. I think most people wouldn't care unless something goes catastrophically wrong, like the DCP doesn't work, if the the screen catches fire, I don't know, (laughs) you know. Unless something catastrophic goes wrong, uh, I don't think people would kind of... I think people 
have become inoculated to how awful most cinema going experiences are mm. that they will just cut they will put up with it because that's that's just what is expected i imagine there would probably be a difference depending on how old the interviewee is i imagine people of an older generation probably would be more willing to point out all the stuff that was terrible whereas i think people of a younger generation who are used to the idea of just kind of looking at your phone taking a phone call or just kind of like talking over the stuff that's happening probably would be less likely to complain about that stuff mm. and do you think that it's going to be seen as quite antiquated because let's not forget that cinema going is as old as film and mm. going to the cinema in the kind of 40s 50s 60s 70s to the most part the 80s was the only way you could see movies they'd be shown on tv but in shitty quality kind of you know pan and scanned or whatever but there was no way to and it had to be programmed just to catch it on television and then obviously with video and then consequently dvd and you know blu-ray and all that nonsense you can now watch films in any other ways do you think that cinema actually sitting in a big room on a big screen with other people in a dark room is going to become kind of an antiquated thing that we don't have to do anymore because we don't have to do it we can see films in so many other ways to uh, to draw an analogy to something we talked about in the episode we did recently on television in in 2015, I think it might be similar to the the vision of the future of television that's been proposed, which is where people don't watch stuff on television live as they do now. They don't have kind of broken down channels. All the channels basically exist exist as apps, and you just go on them and choose the programs you want to watch from there. Mm. Uh, I kind of and then in a generation's time, people will be like what you mean that tv shows used to be you could only watch them at a certain time of the day and of the week and of the year you mm. couldn't watch every episode of a season in a single day or at, at your leisure you know i think that the revolutions of all forms of media since the kind of the dawn of the internet has been towards giving consumers more power over how they watch things and when they watch things and taking it away from and and taking that that power of control away from all the old gatekeepers but in taking that power away you essentially take away a lot of the way that those gate gatekeepers make money in order to make the stuff that people like mm. uh, and so <laughs> you're entering a situation where uh, there's going to be some sort of incredible strange cataclysmic tectonic shift where the way people understand media becomes and experience media is shifts rapidly from what it was for kind of our parents and our grandparents mm. And whatever cataclysmic shifts occur, you can be certain that me and Ed will be there going, mm, yeah, I think that's good. <laughs> <laughs> we kind of kind of thought this might come, but we were hoping it didn't. And wow, yeah, it's here. So let's deal with it. <laughs> so yeah, cinema going, complex beast. And I hope you've uh, you've taken something from this episode. Uh, let's do a short reverse shot recommends. What you got this week, Ed? I have a film that I watched yesterday for the first time, but which I've been wanting to see for a very long time. Julie Taymor's Titus, a adaptation of the play Titus Andronicus by Billy Shakes from 1999, starring... Uh, he, William Shakespeare wrote it in 1999. I know, it's incredible. Wow. It's like the two-pack of plays. <laughs> he, uh, starring Anthony Hopkins and Jessica Lange and uh, Laura Fraser, who I think most people are probably most familiar from from the late seasons of Breaking Bad, mm -hmm. Jonathan Rhys-Mayers. It's, it's, a, it's a stacked cast, and what's great about it, other than the fact you have a lot of really great actors doing incredible work, is that Julie Tamer, who is uh, more famous for her work on the stage, you know, she, she created the stage version of The Lion King, 
and she was bogged down for many years in the debacle that was Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. She uh, takes the, frankly, the daftest of Shakespeare's plays, uh, the kind of craziest, the ones that has one character chopping off their own hand and uh, two characters being fed to another character in the form of a pie Mm. and just goes completely crazy with it. She kind of, instead of setting it in Roman times, she sets it in a kind of amalgam of every single time since the the age of Rome. So people are riding around in centurion armor whilst also in kind of vintage cars. People are firing bows and arrows, but they also have handguns. And it's kind of this complete... Uh, overload of creativity which at some times some some points in the kind of near three hour running time becomes kind of overwhelming but for the most part it's just kind of giddy and exciting and also anyone who uh, is a fan of watching Alan Cumming just kind of going absolutely nuts of a character uh, his performance in it really has to be seen to be believed. Mm. Never knowingly underplays does he <laughs> uh, Alan Cumming. So I want to recommend a film that might slip under people's radar and I'll make sure it doesn't. It's a film called Circle. It's a new film, came out this year. I think it went straight to VOD. It's on most Netflixes. It's uh, very similar in, in kind of kind of concept and execution to the film Cube in that it's a very low-budget science fiction film that has a, at its heart a kind of ingenious concept. This film, Circle, is uh, begins with 50 strangers who wake up on an alien spaceship and they're all stood in a circle facing each other and they're all stood within their own little circles which they cannot leave every two minutes a kind of black dome in the middle of the room kills one of the people with a with a bolt of electricity and after a couple of minutes these guys realize that they can influence who is going to get shot next cue an hour and a half of 50 people deciding who dies next and who gets to live last and it's a great concept. It's executed really cleverly. It is not perfect. It is let down through some of the same things that Cube is let down by, which is some kind of quite shabby acting and a kind of a, a slightly slow middle section. But ultimately, it is a hugely fun little film. It's kind of like, if I had to pitch it, it's kind of like Cube meets The Weakest Link, but without Anne Robinson. In this, Anne Robinson is a, is a shiny dome that fires electric bolts and kills people. Nice. But yeah, definitely check it out, because I would hate to see that film slip by with no one uh, kind of seeing it. That's it for this week. It's the end of the show. I'll say the things that I normally do. Thanks for listening. That's one. And the rest is you can find us on Facebook and on Twitter and our website, which is srspodcast.podbean.com. If you've got questions like uh, Mr. Hudson had earlier, please do get in touch and let us know. Uh, You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher and Player FM. And if you want to take part in the study that uh, Melvin Stokes was talking about earlier on in the episode, or if your parents or grandparents you think would be interested in doing it, the URL again is ucl.ac.uk forward slash cinema memories. It takes about 45 minutes to complete the survey online, or you can get it mailed to you and do it at your leisure. Uh, it's a really interesting study. My dad did it earlier and he was talking about how it kind of sent up a kind of a Proustian rush of all of these different memories of going to the cinema in the 60s when he was he was young. And he said it's it's a really fun experience to do and it would help out in a, a very interesting sociological study. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes to this as well if you would like to just not have to type something. Mm. I love a good Proustian rush. We'll be back next week with a Halloween episode, which should be a lot of fun. Until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. <laughs>